a few years ago we were there and we were um, in, a, in a hiking mood, I thought. And so I took my, uh, I, my wife and I took our, our kids and we said we're going to hike St. Mary's Peak. It's a, one of the highest peaks on the, right on the border of this range. Beautiful place and also a safe trail. The kids were young at the time, they were toddlers, and our youngest, Isaac, was sometimes really energetic and enthusiastic and sometimes not so much. Unfortunately, we picked a day that was on the not so much side of things. And I knew it was about a nine mile hike and significant elevation, and I knew that's a long walk for a toddler. And so I, I mean, I expected that, and so I expected to carry him a good bit of the way in my pack. But I also expected him to walk at least a third or a fourth of the way. I mean, his older brothers did. They were fine. They did good at it. So I thought, Isaac is the age they were, and he can handle this too. I was wrong. We went about 100 meters down the trail, and he said, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> and I tried to encourage him to go forward. And we went a little further, and he said, my yegs hurt. And we go a little further, and he says, will you please carry me? So I thought, well, this didn't go as well as I had thought, but okay. So I put him in the pack. He sits in the pack for a little while, and he says, my yeggs are hurting me up here, too. <laughs> so I took him down, and he walked another 100 yards. And then he said, I'm so tired, I cannot do this. Please carry me. So I put him back in the pack. And we went a little further, and he says, I don't like it in here. I can't do this. So I took him down, and he walked another 100 yards. This, we repeated this. He went from walking a little bit to in the pack to on my shoulders to walking to in my pack to on my shoulders. And finally, I just held him on my shoulders. And I'll tell you this, by the time we broke Timberline and we're near the summit... The joy of the hike had long since faded out. <laughs> I was basically finishing because I'm stubborn. It wasn't fun anymore. We broke the tree line, we're up in the rocks in the snow, and finally we reached the summit. And the elation one usually feels upon reaching a summit wasn't really with me that day. I was just tired and frustrated. And so I took him off my shoulders and I set him down. And as soon as I set him down, he runs to the highest point where there's a rock cairn built with flags, a couple of mountaineers' flags flying off of it. He runs to the top of this, the top, the highest point on the mountain. He runs a total of maybe 12 feet, climbs to the top, stands triumphantly, flexes on us and says, I did it! It's funnier now to you than it was to me then. That was not cool. I was not enjoying it. All I said to him was, no, you didn't. Now, sometimes I think that is a little bit like the way we live our Christian lives and the ways that we attempt to do Christian ministry. We vacillate from, I can't do this. This is too hard. 
I don't know where it's going to end. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. My legs hurt. I'm out of breath. I have no more energy. I'm tired. I can't do it. To, I did it. And sometimes we get all excited. We have semester or year-long emphasis on servanthood, and we think, I can be a servant. I can do this. I can, I can handle this part. And then we try. And we say, I can't. It's too hard. I didn't know it was going to be this hot. I didn't know I was going to be so tired. I didn't know my legs would hurt. It's interesting, Jesus, in our passage today, says, I am going away from you. And in one of the most understandable passages in Scripture, we read, the disciples were filled with grief. In one of the less understandable passages of Scripture, Jesus immediately responds, this is for your good. This is a cause, he says, for joy and celebration, not grief. Jesus says this because he is saying, I go and I will send to you the blessed Holy Spirit. Who is he talking about? I understand that I'm talking to a seminary audience, but I'm going to emphasize this point because it's one that Yes, even us can easily forget. The Holy Spirit is a person. Sometimes there's confusion about this in Christian theology, in Christian liturgy, in Christian piety. Sometimes we see people trying to wield or throw the Spirit as if it's some sort of impersonal force or instrument that is somehow at our disposal and somehow in our control. Now, sometimes this confusion can be, to some degree, understandable. Uh, there is, of course, biblical imagery that sounds less than personal. The Bible sometimes refers to the Spirit as a wind or fire. Sure. But the overall biblical picture that emerges is of the Spirit who is fully personal. Spirit who is lied to. The Spirit who is grieved to. The Spirit who is angered. And, importantly... Here, Jesus uses distinctly and forcefully personal language in reference to the Spirit. He says, I go away, and I will send him to you. He will come. He will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. He will do the work I have begun. So the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is a divine person. Scripture teaches, Christian tradition has long recognized and affirmed the full and complete divinity of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is not sort of divine, the Spirit is not divine-ish, the Spirit is not of some lesser deity. No, the Spirit is fully personal and fully divine, as the creeds tell us, homoousios with the Father and the Son, equal with Father and Son, one with Father and Son. Now I know we all say the creeds, and I know that we all believe this, but sometimes I wonder if we are more like these disciples than we tend to think. That is, we affirm these things, but I'm wondering, do we believe them? Like, deep in our bones believe this? To the core of our existence, 
We may, or maybe not, formally affirm orthodoxy when we're asked about it. But think how a great deal of common Christian liturgy goes. We all know when Christmas is. Even the lowest of low churches will often celebrate Advent. But Pentecost doesn't really rate so high, does it? What are we saying or implying or suggesting? That the Holy Spirit isn't real, that the Holy Spirit isn't personal, that the Holy Spirit isn't really divine or fully divine? That the coming of the Holy Spirit doesn't really matter as much as Jesus leaving did? No, brothers and sisters, think of how this does matter. The Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, that's as fully divine and fully personal and as fully real as the Son, has been given to us by the Son and is with his people today. That is who Jesus is talking about. That's why Jesus says this is not an occasion for grief or sorrow. This is an occasion for joy. That's why Jesus says, it's going to be better for you. He's more specific yet. That's who he's talking about, but where he gets specific is when he talks about what the Holy Spirit will do. And first he says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. The Spirit will expose the true situation. The Spirit will bring it out of darkness and into light. The world, as we know, is full of confusion about sin. In some cases, there's widespread denial of the very notion of sin. And of course, there is rampant confusion today, just as there was, for instance, in Isaiah's day. So many who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. At the social and political levels, Everywhere we look, it seems, there's corruption, there's injustice, there's wickedness. At the personal level, everywhere we look, it seems, including sometimes in the mirror, there's corruption, there's weakness, there's lack of concern for righteousness, there's wickedness. And so much of it seems so hidden. So much of it seems to run so deep. So much of it seems to get shrugged off with callous arrogance. Just to be blunt, just to be honest, just to speak from our experience, in our world and sometimes in our hearts, it looks like sin is winning. It looks like sin reigns. And Jesus speaks of our world in this situation when he tells us what the Holy Spirit will do. And what Jesus promises is that the Holy Spirit will bring it to light, will convince and convict of sin. Now the sin he's talking about here is ultimately the willful rejection of Jesus. And Jesus tells us that the Spirit will come and convict the world of this sin. He says the Spirit will convict the world of sin, and he says the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness. Jesus says, because I am going to the Father. 
that is, having convicted the world of its sin and its pseudo-righteousness, which I think is probably as easy to see in our world, isn't it, as the sin itself? Every special interest group wants to pride itself on being on the right side of history or the right side of whatever. Having convicted the world of its sin and its false righteousness, the Holy Spirit also convicts of true righteousness. And I take John here to be using unmistakably forensic or legal language. I think it's rare in John's Gospel, but I do think it's right here. He is pointing us toward the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, where it is demonstrated that He is the righteous one, and the Spirit will bear witness to Him and remind us that our hope is in Him and His righteousness. For John, I think, no less than Paul, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The Spirit Spirit has come to convict the world of sin, and yet, God does not then convict us of that, but then throw ourselves back upon ourselves. He does not tell us, rescue yourself, go make yourself righteous. No, the Spirit convicts the world of its sin and convinces the world of its one true hope. Its one true hope for righteousness and justice in this world that is the crucified, resurrected, ascended, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit will convict the world of sin, convince the world of righteousness, our one true righteousness, and will convict the world about judgment. In fact, he says, the ruler of this world stands condemned. We cannot afford to miss the depth and intensity of the irony here. It's Jesus here who is on his way to condemnation and ultimately execution. All that he stands for, all that he has taught, seems to be at risk. The twisted and warped values of this world seem to be victorious. The injustice and oppression of the present order seem to be invincible. And here Jesus pronounces the great reversal. The forces that appear triumphant have already been condemned. And the one who is suffering the greatest injustice will be victorious over that wickedness. No wonder then that though the prince of darkness is grim, we tremble not for him. Let me in conclusion draw two quick lessons, direct lessons for us. First, We must not miss the fact that the Holy Spirit does this through the lives and testimonies of those who follow Jesus. Jesus says he will convict the world of sin, and it's the Holy Spirit who does this, but how will he convict the world of sin and convince the world of our one true righteousness? Through the lives and witness of the followers of Jesus. Sometimes I hear Christians, I'm sure well-meaning Christians, but I hear Christians make claims like this. Well, we can't afford to be making moral judgments. It's only God's business and not ours. And that, to me, seems like a a pile of nonsense. Well-intentioned nonsense, pious nonsense, but nonsense. 
It's also an abdication of our responsibility as followers of Jesus. For as followers of Jesus who are filled with the Spirit, we are to be passionate about these things. And God's people, at least when faithful, have always been willing to call evil, evil, and good, good. Whether we see it around the world in slavery and genocide, or whether we see it in the mirror as hypocrisy and arrogance, The Holy Spirit has been promised to believers for the sake of the world. And the Holy Spirit promises to do his work through the followers of Jesus. And secondly, we cannot afford to forget, can afford to uh, fail to remember that this is ultimately about the presence and power of of the Holy Spirit. So often it seems, it just seems like this, that the forces of evil are insurmountable. Whether we encounter them on a global scale or whether we face a personal crisis in discipleship right in front of us and our loved ones. What Jesus tells us is that this is for our good. Because the Holy Spirit convinces and convicts and judges. And we remind that it simply isn't so. It isn't the way it looks. Yes, it looks like evil is often victorious. Yes, it looks like the arrogant and the those who oppress get away with it. Jesus says, I'm going away, I will send the Spirit, and none of that will be true. When we speak out for the oppressed, when we stand up for the defenseless, brothers and sisters, we are not doing it alone. When we point people to their only hope of salvation, when we point people to the righteous one who offers us righteousness, when we preach Christ and him crucified, whatever that means for us, we are not doing so alone. When we see the evil of this world that is so vast and seems so entrenched, when we are tempted to despair, we do not face those temptations alone. When you look at a child and see the results of neglect and abuse, when you look in the bruised and battered and and frightened face of a child, we dare not think that the one who calls us to make a difference throws us back upon ourselves to do it alone. When you turn on your computer late tonight and feel the urge to indulge lustful appetites, when that porn just seems too strong, you must not forget the one who is with you. And we must remember that the one who calls us to purity and wholeness does not leave us alone. 
When you stand in your congregation and in your community against the forces of injustice, when you stand opposed to the evil that seems so deeply entrenched and just so strong, when that evil stands right back up and stares you in the face, when you fight like fury against it and it spits on you and mocks you, remember that the one who calls us, the one who promises us, does not leave us alone. Philosophers and theologians have speculated and they've debated a speculative question. Would it have been easier to be a full-fledged, wholehearted follower of Jesus if you had lived, say, in first century Galilee? If you could have gone to his, gone and hear him teach? If you, if you could have heard him preach the gospel of Isaiah? If you could have seen him perform miracles, wouldn't it have been easier? Not according to Jesus. I'm going, he says, and you are filled with sorrow. But this is for your good. There, if, if you and I are faithful to the fullness of the gospel of Christ... You and I will face trouble. People who are engaged in wickedness, who love oppression, who call good evil and evil good, are usually not real thrilled when that gets exposed. And the people who have the power will stand up and smack you down. And sometimes it's just going to seem too hard. And sometimes the journey seems long. And sometimes you're going to be saying, my eggs hurt. And it is for you at that moment. It's for you then of all times to hear these words of our Lord. It is for your good. Not just that he's going away, no. But that the comforter, the advocate, will be with you. I remember um, as a college student, uh, maybe less wisdom than other, other uh, virtues. I remember uh, one night, uh, one evening, kind of late at night, I was with some friends and we were just chatting on a, on a porch overlooking, uh, the, overlooking the campus. And it was late at night, we were just talking as we did. And then we saw a group of young men coming across the, on the other side of the neighboring parking lot. And we, I noticed that one of them um, was, was trying to ride a bicycle. And I say trying because the bicycle wasn't working very well and the chain kept coming off. 
And I took a little closer look and understood why. The bicycle belonged to a friend of mine. He was a friend who had come from Haiti with a gym bag full of clothes and not much else. And someone had given him this old bicycle. And now these guys had come onto our campus and were taking it away. And I saw this, and when I recognized the bicycle, something kind of snapped in me, and I just thought, that's not right. And so I clearly remember thinking to myself, I don't want any trouble with these guys, I don't want a problem, but I'm going to go get the bike. And so I just started walking straight toward them. And I noticed as I was walking toward them that they started doing two things. Simultaneously saying lots of mean and threatening things, some about me and some for some reason about my mother. <laughs> they kept making threatening statements and they kept backing up. And I remember thinking very clearly, I don't want a problem, I don't want to start anything, but I am going to go get the bike. But then as I saw them backing up, somewhere along the line, I clearly remember this feeling of thinking, they're not as dumb as they look, are they? They don't want none of this. Well, I got all the way over, and they dropped the bike and backed up away from the bike. And then I realized my plan wasn't very well thought out and wasn't that great. Because what am I supposed to do? Pick the bike up? Try to shuffle backwards about 100 yards? <laughs> or pick the bike up, turn, and then be vulnerable to getting jumped? And I didn't know what to do, but I thought, in for a penny, in for a pound? So I reached down, picked the bike up, and turned on my heel. And as soon as I did, I understood why they were backing up. Because one step behind me was the appropriately named Greg Burley. <laughs> All six foot nine inches and 265 pounds of him. He looked down at me and he said, made an eloquent statement that went along something along the lines of, gotcha McCall. It wasn't about me. And it's not about you. And some days you may be tempted to think, I'm going to flex and tell everybody I did it. And no, you didn't. And some days in your efforts to live out a life of discipleship, and some days in your efforts to proclaim truth, and in some days in your courage to call good good and evil evil, and in your exuberance to call people to repentance and to believe the gospel, you are going to face challenges and you are going to get beat up. And you're going to be tempted to say, this is too hard. And I can't do it. And in that case as well, it's not about you. It's about the one whom Jesus promised to send to us. You are filled with grief, but this is for your good. Let's pray together. Triune God of holy love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for the good news that we have received.
We thank you for the grace we have been called to extend and the good news that we have been privileged to share. And we pray, Lord, that we will live into the fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit and know the deep personal communion that comes with that and be empowered by your Spirit. Remind us when we're tempted to flex and remind us when we're tempted to despair. And remind us evermore of your goodness and greatness. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.